0: Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. The passage is also in your worship booklet there. We are now at verse 13 to verse 16. Before I begin, I want to thank you for praying for my family, for my mom especially. A couple Fridays ago, she called me about midnight. She lives basically with us in a detached—she calls it the garage, so it is, but it's an expensive garage. But at any rate— she called me and told me she was not feeling well. My mother never complains about anything physically related. She's just pretty been just tough that way. So I knew something could not be right. And we went to the emergency room closest to our house, which is the new one right over here on 167th of Metcalf. I didn't really even know where it was connected to, but it, which doesn't matter, but we got there. I thought they had a hospital already built there, but they have the emergency room and they were great. They checked her out. But nothing showed except for really high blood pressure, and then a cu- gave a couple bits of medicine, and then she was better. And she was already saying, "Never mind, it's okay," and wanted to go home. And about two in the morning, by the time um, they were still looking at some tests, and we were both kind of like, "Okay, it's time to go home." She felt fine, and so uh, the guy, the doctor, thankfully would not let her go home, and instead transferred her up to Advent Health Shawnee Mission Hospital because they're connected, and uh, she got there like at three or four in the morning. I went home, got up and taught the leadership class and told the leadership class Saturday that I got to go back at nine. I'll probably just pick my mom up. They're going to let her out. Well, she'll be done. But when I got there, she was already in the cardiac unit and they had discovered quite a, quite a few problems with her arteries. So they had to do surgery on Monday. And so she's still there uh, today, but she's doing much better. Just two prayer requests for mom. Hopefully she's not watching this right now, but we'll see. Um, I'll find out in an hour and a half. But um, Basically, uh, the prayer for her are twofold, and that's fine if she does here. Um, One is just to get her lung capacity completely working. It's not uncommon to not breathe in deeply after you've had your chest basically cleaved with a battle axe. But beyond that, that's what it looks like. Um, She's got the issue of following the directions of the physical therapist and the occupational therapist because she's ready to go and move and do a bunch of stuff, but she's got to follow all sorts of very important rules, and she's... Not necessarily following them yet, so we want to pray for Nana to follow the rules, so she can come home. And then when she comes home, there's all that goes into making sure she stays safe and recovers well. So thank you, brothers and sisters, for your prayers. We have really appreciated, it. and she has uh, only the last couple of days could she really uh, recognize what was happening. It's just such a such a brutal process. The whole thing is, it's amazing what our healthcare workers do. I have renewed appreciation for all the care she's received because it, it's an amazing thing, what, they, what the Lord has allowed science to come up with and medicine to work with. So thank you for those prayers, and I will keep you updated, and hopefully she'll be back soon enough. Today we are in Ephesians again, I'm happy to say. I'm loving this book. I would loved it before I started preaching through it, but especially love it now as we go through it um, section by section and verse by verse. We are at verse 13 of Ephesians 4, and the background that I hopefully don't have to say much about, but will remind you uh, Ephesians, the first half is about the deep truths of what God has done to save a people for himself, you and I included. Um, the deep, mysterious depths of grace to us in Christ. Um, also, just that God is creating a, a holy temple of living stones that we are all part of as his church. That's what is true is the first half. What to do in light of what is true is the second half, and that's where we have found ourselves now starting at chapter four. In a chapter four, the... The theme that Paul really hits home with, which should not surprise us because this was the prayer of Jesus for the church, is that we would be unified. Now, we're unified in Christ and his work. That's the the reason for our unity. It's not a sloppy unity, just, all let's just get together because we live in the same subdivision. This has to do with we have all been saved from hell by Christ. And so we as saved people, living stones, adopted sons and daughters, we have unity in Christ So we should live out that unity in the way we relate to one another in our lives together. There's an actual unity in Christ, and there's a unity to be attained in this life as we live out likeness. So unity is connected to maturity. As we grow in Christ, we'll become more unified. As we become more unified, we become more impactful to the world for Christ. And by the way, he gives a diversity of gifts to grow us in maturity and develop our unity. These are themes that Paul has already introduced and now in the what to do portion of the book is going to really compel us towards these even more. And in particular today, the way to enhance our unity by growing spiritually, by every individual here recognizing that he or she is called by God to keep growing in Christ. Wherever you are in the continuum, a brand new believer, someone who's been a believer a long time, doesn't matter. We're all called to be moving along in spiritual maturity. And God gives us his word and gives us preachers and teachers and pastors and elders in the church to help us, to motivate us along this path. With that preface, turn now to Ephesians 4. I'll start at verse 11. Even though our focus starts at verse 13, we need the context to remember where we were and then see where we're going. This is God's holy word, Ephesians four eleven through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. so that it builds itself up in love. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, once again we come to you asking for the illuminating ministry of your Holy Spirit to come upon us as we gather around your open word. We believe your word is true and ask for you to sanctify us by it. We not only desire to know and understand the word, but to live according to what has been made clear in it help me to be accurate and clear in explaining what you have said to us. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. This past Friday, I was at a soccer game. My son was playing in at Van Horn High School in Independence, and I was sitting with Chico Cheruboga. He was watching his son play. I was watching my son play. First time we've had a chance to have our kids play together. One's a freshman, one's a senior. Chico trained seven or eight of the kids that are my son's age now when they were young, uh, just the basic moves in soccer, and really he got their, them started in all the technical aspects of the game, and it's, it's certainly got to be fun for him to watch these older students now play, and knowing he trained them when they were little. We got talking about soccer and how we had played on a team together here at Redeemer, at least it was made up with many men from the church and some from outside the church, and for about eight years we were in a league, um, All-American Sports, Indoor. And uh, it was a fun time for us, but it reminded me some of the dynamics it's, that are true in any organization and in a church, dealing with maturity and unity. And um, when we were playing, inevitably, almost every time we would come to a game, we could sense the other team sizing us up and judging us by our looks. They're thinking, these dudes are old and kind of fat. What They're going to kill us. You could just sense that they probably thought they should have drank a pitcher of beer before because they could have afforded to playing us. And you could just sense the looks that they're giving us. And we kind of enjoyed it after a while because we are much older than most of the teams. We had a couple guys from the church like Rudy Prins and a couple others who would be young and bring down our average age to about 42. Uh, but basically, we were in this open league with younger teams. And inevitably, what would happen, because we understood our limitations, we were under no illusions any longer, we understood that we were limited in what we can do, so we needed to be, act as a team like no other team did, especially for a, you know, a rec league like this. If we're going to have any fun and compete at all, we'd have to come together, put each other in the right spots, and just play a good strategy, and we would have fun. And I'm telling you, we won way more games than we lost over those years. And the way it would almost always happen is the teams would see us right away. They'd let their guard down a little, thinking these guys aren't going to be able to keep up with us. Then the game would start. We would set up into a kind of a hunkered-down position, more defensive. Let them come at us. Let the young guys work out all that young energy they've got, and they'll go crazy for the first five to ten minutes thinking they're supposed to be beating us right away. But we had Levi Gillen, our deacon in goal, who is an All-American Division I football player. Now, he didn't play soccer before, but who cares? In indoor soccer, it's more a football player who plays the goal, and that's what he did. And he, didn't, he would get pumped with shots for the first five or ten minutes, and they couldn't get anything by him. And we would just wait till they got tired. And then what would happen, because they weren't unified, they would start to get frustrated that they weren't winning, and we would get a goal inevitably. They'd get madder. And by the end of the game, they would be bickering at each other, and they would be just ripe for the plucking at that point. And we'd beat them. Almost all the time, it would happen like this. And Chico and I were laughing about that. About Remember how we used to get those teams just so frustrated? By the end of it, they fell apart? Well, what helped us is that we knew our limits. We knew we couldn't all do everything. We were, we were limited. But we also knew if we stuck to a plan and stuck together and were unified in it, didn't get down, kept up, things will work and eventually they would come through for us. There's something about the maturity that we had having experience and playing for a long time. Coupled with a a united plan, we're unified. We could then take on other opponents who really were better in every way. They just didn't have those things going for them. They had the opposite issue. Um, They lacked experience, and so they were easily swayed when the thing got tough or tougher than they thought. And then they turned on each other because they were pretty self-focused. They all wanted to see who could score the most goals in the team. Well, eventually, you're not going to win many games that way, not against people who know what they're doing and are unified. I think this is a good picture for how the church can function well. When we are maturing as a body of Christ, recognizing the diversity of the gifts we have, and we stay united, We won't agree on everything absolutely, but when we stay generally united around the person of Christ, God will grant us a deepening unity, which will perpetuate maturity, and then we'll be a more impactful witness for Christ as the world looks to us and sees a transformed community, and we have more boldness to go out and tell the world this Savior who saved us and united us together with others. So I think that there's a close parallel to how these work. The other is true, though. If we're going around as individuals, we're trying to make a name for ourselves or find things that will serve us in the church. You know, we're consumers. It has this ministry, so I'll go to it. Or it's got to think just exactly the way I think. Or uh, any number of these kinds of self-pursuits. Eventually, as pressure comes on, we won't do well with that. And we'll become a bickering group of people that give no witness to Christ at all. You see that in the life of church, lives of churches. I think they translate very well. And here we are in Ephesians, where Paul is encouraging the church to more unity through maturity, through growing. He just gets done with the section before it, saying we'll give you pastors and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, to take your diverse gifts and use them for the building up of the body of Christ. And then ultimately, you will see this unity further enhanced as you grow as you become stronger in Christ. Look at verse 13 in our passage. It gives a bit of a, a purpose statement coming out of what was just said before. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So use your gifts in the church. Pastors, equip the saints to do the work of the ministry and do this until, verse 13, we all attain to the unity of of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God. It's an ongoing, never-ending process. At least not in this life. It will not end for us as believers. We're constantly in that walk. In fact, the passage is telling us the way to enhance our unity in Christ is to pursue spiritual maturity. The way to enhance the unity of the church, to deepen it, to strengthen it, is to pursue spiritual maturity. Every one of us. And what does spiritual maturity look like? It has to do with attaining the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, as verse 13 says. It's synonymous with being full of Christ. Its Maturity is synonymous with Christ-likeness. He is the model. He's who we are striving towards. And verse 13 sets up the rest of the passage. Until we all attain, that's all every member of the church, not just the, the super spiritual ones, All till we all attain to the unity of the faith. The faith here is is Christianity. It's the person of, it's us gathered formally around the person of Christ, the Christian faith. We all attain unity as the body of Christ in Christ and the knowledge of the Son of God. So there's there's an association outwardly with the body of Christ and then there's a personal knowledge of Jesus that we are all growing in. This is the key to spiritual maturity. It's not memorizing all sorts of doctrinal platitudes or even the catechism as such, although we should, it helps, don't get me wrong. It's not that part of it intellectually so much. It's how those things serve to make us have a clearer picture of Jesus and his work. And they do that when we recognize it. But the end goal is likeness, And so we have to study who he is, what his word says about him. And we plumb the depths of that all of our days on earth, growing in likeness. And eventually, as we move along, we reach reach a more mature manhood or adulthood, as we would say. This applies to everybody in the church. And we become more and more mature. Now, he's going to use the image of a child in a bit set up against adulthood, and we'll all recognize this clearly. But for now, see verse 13 setting up the rest of the passage. It's Paul striving that the people of God recognize all these truths he's been speaking, and that The leadership of the church motivates the people, equips the people to do the work of the ministry until we attain this unity that shows itself in maturity. And the ultimate measure of it all is the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ is the one who we are growing towards and like. Here's a a really bottom line question for our church and for any of us as Christians. Do you want other people to know Jesus in this world? Do you not think this world absolutely, desperately needs to know Jesus? Well, the first level where we can see that happen actually happens right here. It's the unity of the church based on its maturity as it grows. The unity then strengthens more as we use our diversity of gifts and we become all the more credible and all the more bold to preach Christ to the world that watches. And then when the world hears our message and looks at the community and says, wow, that community is different. And they'll know it's not because of us. They'll know it's because of Christ. It all works together, and you'll hear me use these words, unity and diversity and maturity, over and over, because Paul speaks of these terms. In a way to condition us to have an alarm, and this is what I mean. This is classic for my life, and I say it transparently to you. I am really good at studying the formalities of what the Scripture says. Really good. I can teach the doctrines of grace and open up systematics. I love them. But then I could turn around and be a jerk like five minutes later. So I know we may know the truth, but an alarm should go off in our mind. If we are saying or doing things that are opposing or hurting the unity of the church, pause for a minute. Do you see how important the unity is? The unity of the church is to God. So all of us should be vigilant for growing in Christ in practicing, chasing after, being eager to pursue unity in the church. Not a sloppy unity, one that's based on the person of Jesus and his finished work and all that means for us. So it's a deep unity. But recognize that we are prone to study it and say amen to it, shake our heads to it, and then we go back out and we put a Facebook post right away that does not help the unity of the church. Or we say something and gossip to someone that does not help the unity of the church. Go down the list of things that we do that oppose what we profess. And I, I'm sure the apostle understands this is true in every church. It's got to be true for us too. And so we come to the passage with this humility in mind that there are some realities we might have to be addressed by from the text. One of them is the mark of spiritual immaturity that Paul speaks of. He's trying to build them up to become stronger in the faith and not be immature because being immature will lead to great danger. And so we see the marks of what happens when someone's immature in verse 14. Look there so that we may no longer be children. I want you to grow up in the faith so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Notice there are two metaphors that he uses to describe spiritual immaturity. The first one is a child. Now, more specifically, This Greek word is for toddler. There are different words. There's infant, there's toddler, and there's older child or adolescent. This is very clearly the same word that's used in Hebrews 5.13 where we're bid to move from milk to solid food. He's talking about toddlers here. We could be like toddlers if we're spiritually immature. Or we might be like a boat tossed to to and fro in the sea. In antiquity, the boats were dependent upon the wind and the waves. They didn't have engines to, to drive them along. So these two metaphors, let's think about them for a moment because they describe spiritual immaturity and why these, this state of immaturity is very dangerous for Christians and for the church. The first one, so that we may no longer be toddlers. Uh, toddlers. I love toddlers. I love the toddler stage. I enjoyed, especially when the boys were all within, their, I remember they're one, three, and five in that span. They were like, um, you know, they bounced off of each other all the time, and they bounced off of me, and they were running around, and their heads kind of went ahead of everywhere they went. That's what toddlers look like when they're running. In the outdoor service, it's always fun to watch because the families with toddlers, at some point, the toddlers rise up in rebellion about sitting that long, and they toddle to the back of the yard, and they run around, and they fall over, and they they see a squirrel and they run after the squirrel. They see the fire pit and they want to go see if there's fire. They see their friend over in the front. They want, and that's what a toddler does. They go wherever they, their impulse takes them next. And it's cute to us, to some degree, unless they're your child and it's in the middle service and they run in the front. But otherwise, they're toddlers. You know they're toddlers. But that's not what Christians ought to be like for very long. All of us will go through that phase. But if you're just running to everything that happens, like a toddler runs around, That's a dangerous place. You're going to run into danger. A toddler would not think twice of running out in the street, most likely, unless a parent continually teaches them you can't go out in the street. It's danger. And then they grow from being a toddler into the next stage of their development where they know not to do that. So here Paul is warning people in the church, you've got to grow in Christ so you're not like a toddler. It's dangerous to be a toddler. It will lead you to be tossed around. And he uses then overlapping now another metaphor, and this time he uses a metaphor of a boat. Now, who would know this better than Paul? Remember the last part of the book of Acts when he made that final journey to Rome? The brutality of that trip, trying to go against the wind and got shipwrecked, really should have died. And so he, And he had multiple shipwrecks. It was something that was known to people who traveled in the first century. Boats were, were not very big and not very strong, and they depended on a sail. They depended on the wind. They were moved around. It was just the nature of them. You know, I was thinking of, uh, related to this, what really jarred my thinking about even any boat of any era, not just the ones in antiquity, um, Ray Smell is in the leadership class, and he was telling me about his son, Ian, who is a tuna fish boat captain. Um, he works for a guy who bought a fleet of boats and hired him to be the captain of one of his boats. I think he has a dozen on his crew. He has a 114-foot boat that used to be a research vessel for Duke University, but it was bought by this guy and retrofitted into being a tuna fishing ship. And so Ian's a captain of this, and he has his crew. He has to sail uh, down towards the Fiji Islands from California somewhere. It takes him a month to get wherever he's going to go. and the tuna like the warm weather, which is during our winter. So he goes down with his boat and he fishes there for several months in this boat, with his crew. He fills up the hull with a hundred tons of tuna. It takes weeks and weeks. Now, how do they keep the tuna is my question. They flash freeze them, not just like a, a, you know, an old rickety cooler. As soon as they catch the tuna, they flash freeze them, and that can technically be considered fresh, which I didn't know, because they freeze them so fast. So note to your menus when they say fresh fish. You might say, did you flash freeze this fish before you put it in? At any rate, I didn't know it, all this. He's in the boat, and after 150 days at sea, 200-plus miles off ashore, which may be nothing for you if you've been in the Navy, but when you talk about this kind of existence, I can't really imagine it. On a 114-foot boat that suddenly gets pretty small against the backdrop of a huge ocean. And he has multiple stories that he was telling me, and Ray can tell him in a New Jersey accent that I can listen to it all day. And he's telling me about one time where the rudder shaft broke, and there are 150 miles off of the nearest land. They have to wait for someone to come. They're dead in the water. They're consistently being moved by whatever the current is, uh, by the winds and the waves, and they're just rocking about. Even this big, strong, sturdy boat is tossed around like nothing in the ocean. Multiple stories he told me like this, one after another, making me think, who would do this? I like tuna fish, so I'm glad they do. A boat in the sea. That's a description of an immature believer who could be moved when the wind pushes them one way, the waves could shake them up and down, maybe capsize them, maybe drown them, the ship could go down. Back to verse 14. Being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So being a child, a toddler, or being a boat at sea, at sea, you're going to be moved and manipulated by these things if you are immature in Christ, if you're not well in Christ. Let me pause and say this. One of the things that's important for you in your walk, no matter where you are, is, is to be with the people of God, even in difficult times when it's hard to get together. We should make every effort to do it because it's important for us at our varying levels of maturity to help each other up along the way. It's very important if you're young in the faith to be tied in close with other believers so that you can grow in maturity and be stronger so that look at what happens if you don't. They're tossed to and fro, carried about by human cunning. This means you can have individuals come along and they do come along. And they'll trick you. They'll drag you into a certain direction. This has been happening since the world began, even in the New Testament times. Shucksters, charlatans coming in, and they're doing things that draw people away from Christ. And you could be prone to this if you're not growing in the faith or if you're not tied to people who are mature in the faith that can help you discern and become more stable. Every wind of doctrine... There are new fads that come and go, even in Christianity, that they may not be wrong in themselves, but they become the main thing to Christians. You'll see them chase after whatever the latest fad is. And An immature believer can get sucked into the wrong things like that that take them off the focus. So it's important for us to grow in Christ, the knowledge of the Son of God, so we keep him central because all manner of other issues will, will threaten to work their way in. And they'll take someone who's mature, immature and, and drag them off into a bad direction. Also, if we're immature, we could get caught in the craftiness of deceitful schemes. I would suggest one of the most crafty, deceitful schemes under the umbrella of Christianity has been progressive or liberal Christianity, this idea that makes people try to deconstruct whatever the Bible says and still be Christian. I would say these are the craftiest of deceitful schemes. There's a very popular pastor who wrote a whole book Deconstructing What You Should Think About the Bible. And I would suggest an immature person is very prone to follow that. Like, for instance, some of the things that you'll see. You know, ultimately, all religions are the same. We'll be more Christian if we just acknowledge we're all praying to the same God. We'll show better love if we all agree with this. That's a crafty, deceitful scheme that has many well meaning people sitting in the pews thinking maybe that's right. Maybe they're right about that. Or, you know what? You're a good person. You're pursuing good things. You'll go to heaven. That's a very crafty and deceitful scheme that's beyond liberal Christianity. That's something that's been taught in medieval Christianity. Just do good things and ultimately it will work out. All of this drives you away from the word of Christ and the person and work of Christ if you think about it. Now, the culture likes what you're saying then because then everybody's accepted. And everybody's, you know, we're good people generally. You'll, you'll hear newscasters say, you know, Americans are just good people. Listen, I've got a lot of problems with the same things that are being said around But the idea that any people are just good people and it'll work out on the basis of good people is a deceitful and crafty scheme that keeps us blind until it's too late. The Bible is just one among other good religious books. Believe in the idea of resurrection, but not the actuality of resurrection. The list goes on. They are crafty, deceitful schemes. And bottom line, if you're immature in the faith, if you're immature in your knowledge of the Son of God, you are prone to be dragged away. Now, with this... Paul doesn't leave it there. He only has one verse on this mark of immaturity. Then he moves to compel every one of us in the direction of maturity. What does that look like? Look at verse 15. Rather, now I'm going to tell you something the opposite, Paul says. Rather, instead of being immature and tossed to and fro, carried along, carried about, rather, you Christians speak the truth in love. By speaking the truth in love, by truth speaking in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, Christ, who is the head, into Christ. This is powerful instruction. Speak the truth in love. Let's take that apart because I think this is where the key to our ongoing spiritual maturity will happen in the church for us as believers. First of all, speak means that you're in fellowship with others, you have interaction, you are Uh, in community with other believers. It's understood that this is the case. Speak. What are you speaking? The truth. Now, this is not a New York way of speaking, as much as I appreciate that, where you just tell the truth whether people like it or not, or it's your opinion is the truth. You know, I'm just being straight with you. I'm just going to tell you the truth. I'm just going to speak honestly. I tell people what I think. That's not what this is saying. This is in context of the truth of God's word, the truth of Christ. Speaking the truth So we are applying Jesus to our thinking and perspective in the church. We are soaked in that in the life of the church as the teaching of the word goes forward, that it permeates your personal relationships with each other, say on a home fellowship group level where you have more uh, personal relationships or just in general relationships you have in the church where you can speak to someone about something related to what the scripture says that might be an issue in their life. They need encouragement, They might need correction, but we do so speaking the truth. And here's the key modifier, in love. It's done in a way that puts the other person's spiritual growth interest ahead of yours. You're doing it so that they grow in Christ. This means it's going to season the way you say it. So you're going to say things differently. The truth can be said in a harsh way that hurts. It still may be the truth, but we're supposed to do it in love. So this means we pause before we say it, and we think in terms of what is the greater message here, that we would grow in unity, that we would mature. So how do I, in a loving way, putting others first, say the thing that needs to be said, and uphold the unity at the same time? Unity should never be sacrificed just because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But unity has to be maintained by speaking the truth in love. There was a situation a couple years back where uh, a, a dear sister in the Lord was speaking out of turn a bit, and it became become known to some people she was gossiping a bit about something that she shouldn't have. And a real soft-spoken woman uh, said to me, didn't tell me who it was, but told me that she was just feeling burdened about it and was afraid it was going to cause division among the ladies if this woman kept saying, repeating something that wasn't true. Now, maybe she didn't know it wasn't true, but it was divisive. And division is like the, the key enemy to the church's effectiveness for the reasons we're talking about. And I just challenged her, said, speak the truth in love to her. So that will give you a chance to think about how you might say what needs to be said. And she took a few days to do so and went to her sister and then told me afterwards how well it went. She really thought about how to say what she needed to say. She maintained the truth, said it in a way that was gracious, and her sister heard her and there was, uh, there was repentance and there was restoration. They were united more. And other women were more united when they found this out. In that union, they became more mature than they were even before. They went through something that helped them. I had a case less time ago where there was a brother in the church, who had taken a job that was uh, making him be away from the home all the time. Young kids, difficult situation. And it wasn't just a matter of a season, you know, where you sometimes have to do that in, the, in, the, in your job. That sometimes happens. But this was more, he was kind of taking a track that way to get to a certain place, following after a certain person he was kind of trying to be like. And another brother in the Lord, And I didn't know this was going on, but this other brother comes to me and says, do you think it's, it would be okay or would it make sense? Would it be helpful for me to talk to so-and-so just to warn them because the person who wanted to warn them was a little bit older, 10 years older, and had done some of the same things, pursued some of the same things, and really regretted it. And so I remember giving the same kind of advice. And the reason why I give this advice so quickly is wise people tell me this too when I think it's time to give the truth. Speak the truth in love. This is a sign of maturity and it promotes more maturity in the body. Why? Because it brings more unity. So he went to the brother and just really heartfelt, kind of pleaded with him just to, hey, think about this. I'm not judging you for what you're doing. I'm just giving you an insight from my own experience. You might be heading this direction if you're not careful. Just like the other case, the brother took it with great appreciation and humility. and was able to make some adaptations that have really helped these couple years later. And it served to become an example that they both would talk about to others that might be sucked into the same thing, which is so possible for any one of us, pastors included. No one is in some way off limits when it comes to that kind of temptation or that kind of pursuit. So I stress these to you because I believe that they're markers of maturity. They also perpetuate more maturity as we grow more trusting of one another and unified. And by the way, the things we're bringing to people are things that are biblical issues. They're not issues of my opinion about a certain this or that. They're, they make us think about, is this the truth? Is this a Bible matter or is this a, a, a taste matter? So back to the passage. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. I love this uh, pastoral plea that Paul's making to the Ephesians that it translates so well in every era, ours included. Go to the last verse and I want you to see the summarizing thought of this section. That's some serious rain out there right now. Wow. I told the early service if it started sprinkling, we're just going to stay put because we're Presbyterians and sprinkling doesn't bother us. But this would be a different story so I'm glad we're inside. This would be, even the Baptists would have to be happy with this kind of a rain, I would think. Verse 16. This has to do now with a, a 13 was kind of setting it up, 16's bringing it together. From whom the whole body, now he's using the metaphor of the human body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Think of the human body, its joints, its muscles, its parts. This is an image he's used before. That whole body is going to grow up together. You won't have the arm just getting much, much bigger than the rest of the body. The whole of the body all attaining together for the same growth and maturity. Now, there are bigger and smaller parts. That's how God puts us together. We're diverse that way. But each part has to grow in concert with the rest, for the church to be its most effective with every jo- by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, brothers and sisters, when we're all working the way God's called us to work, it makes the body, the church, to grow so that it builds itself up in love. This isn't talking about numeric growth necessarily, although many times God does bring more as a result, but many times he doesn't. It's the body that he's called together growing more and more effectively, stronger together. In love, that care and concern for others over ourselves is that glue that holds it together, that oil that keeps the parts from having friction with each other but helps us to work smoothly together. And the main catalyst for all of this goes back to what he gave us as his gifts. His word to be preached in our prolonged exposure to who the person of Jesus is through the word Will help us in this endeavor. They all go together. The truth and love together help us mature. And this brings us more unity. And through this unity, we become a much stronger witness for Jesus. Jesus' final prayer before he went to the cross, before he did the most unifying act in the history of earth, when he went to the cross to bring a people to himself, to redeem a people to himself. What he prays right before then should gain our attention. I know every word of Jesus should. But John 17 is particularly precious to us because he prays for his disciples who would become the apostles and he prays for us by extension. In John 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me, so that the world may believe. That's why we pursue this maturity in this unity, so that Jesus would be celebrated by everybody. This is this great purpose of the church. We are called, like we read from the confession, which is a biblical expression, to be ministering the mysteries of God, his word, preaching it, for the gathering and the perfecting of the saints. And not just so we could all have a holy huddle after it's over, but so that we would be matured and able to credibly and carefully and accurately preach and declare Jesus to the world. I want everybody on this earth to know Jesus. And I know the first step for that is for this church at Redeemer to become more unified. And we will become more unified as we mature in Christ. That's how we will see the church reached for Christ. I hope you sense the power that God works through these means. James Boyce captures this passage by saying, God's chief purpose for the church is that it might become full grown and that each of its members might contribute to that maturity by becoming spiritual adults. And after all, we say the Redeemer is a community of Christians who love to worship their God, study his word, and proclaim his gospel to the world. The way to enhance our unity, brothers and sisters is to pursue spiritual maturity, individually and collectively, as his bride. Let's bow together as I close us in prayer. Father, we have seen before us how the apostle gives us a picture of a a deepening fellowship as the book of Ephesians unfolds. We see an eagerness to maintain visible Christian unity coming from the apostle, recognizing how important it is, and to recover it if it's been lost. Lord, in every age, there are many threats to the unity of the church. The pages of history are littered with the stories of many dead and dying churches. Churches that either caved on the truth and died or failed to show love and dwindled to nothing. Lord, spare our church from something like that. Give us the exercise of unity displayed in this book of Ephesians. Spur us to use the diversity of gifts present here among the body to serve one another, and to grow each of us in maturity. Lord, with a balance of truth and love, make us to be a bold witness for Jesus Christ in our own community and in this world. Lord, where we may be strained or stressed, help us by your grace to mend any breaches with love. The love you have given us through the person and work of Jesus. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.